During the time that Owen was in Vietnam, I looked out and I saw a government car. It was a blue car and it said United States government. And I knew that when people were killed in Vietnam, they sent people to go to their families with the news. And I looked out and saw that car. And then I saw this man walking up the step on the porch. And I didn't hardly have strength left to open the door, but I opened the door and he asked me who I was and everything. And he said, well, I'm here today to get a recommendation for a young man who wants to join the FBI. Oh, come on in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. That's my mom. Her name's Mary Jean. And she's talking about one of her more poignant memories from when my dad was in Vietnam. She was lucky, and I guess I was too, that the man who came to her door was just doing a background check on one of her friends. My dad, Owen Peterson, wasn't one of the guys who talked a lot about Vietnam, but he also wasn't one of the guys who never talked about it either. For example, growing up, I'd heard this story about what had happened one time at the spot where they stored ammunition. It was at the uh, uh, ammunition dump, and one of the kids either raised up or they happened to hit just right, and he caught a round that went basically into his mouth and came out uh, along his jawbone. When we uh, loaded him on to uh, medevac-type stuff, he was alive, and I have every reason to think he made it home. Really, though, what I knew about my dad's Vietnam experiences came less from what he said than from the pictures he'd taken while he was there. He wasn't a photographer or anything, he just took a lot of photos. Next to our family photo albums with pictures of Christmas mornings and birthdays and graduation were a few separate albums with fabric covers that had pictures of Marines filling sandbags and farmers stooping over rice paddies. And then, interspersed through them, were pictures of amphibious vehicles that had hit mines, and there were even a few of a fireball rising up after an artillery strike. Growing up, I had looked through the pictures of my dad's personal experience in this major event in American history, but I never really thought very much about it. In 2014, after finishing my own military service in the Army, I went to my parents' house and looked through those old photos again, but now they had a lot more meaning. I think as we had spent so much time training and drilling over and over again in case we were sent to Iraq or Afghanistan, but we were never sent, I wanted to see what it was like for my dad who had been to a war. In this episode of That Doesn't Happen Every Day, in which we interview everyday people about things that don't normally happen every day, I interview my dad about his Vietnam photos and try to find out how this person I'd sort of taken for granted as just my dad had survived those experiences and then managed to go home and move on like it hadn't happened. This is the day I left for Vietnam, which is February the 22nd of 1968. The first picture my dad shows me is of him wearing one of the many uniforms Marines had to wear, and he's smiling at the camera next to my very pregnant mom, who would give birth to my oldest brother a few months later. That's Mary Jean and I before I went to the airport in Salt Lake City to fly out. My dad isn't the most emotive person, but he is smiling in this picture. It could be that my dad is just trying to look happy and enthusiastic and positive and be strong for his pregnant wife. He's about to leave for a war. Honestly, though, he does look like he is genuinely excited, probably after months and months and months of training, to go do what he had learned to do. 
His expression reminds me of how excited I was when I quit my job and left for the army, though my experiences, which were mostly in Germany, were in no way like what my dad experienced when his plane landed in Dong Ha, Vietnam. The flare plane that we flew on uh, landed, and they said, OK, now get off the plane as quick as we can because we don't know if we'll receive incoming. And they lowered the clamshell, in other words, the back of the plane. They kept the plane going, and they said, OK, you're going to get off. And so we uh, rolled off of it and uh, went down, of course, because the plane wasn't real fast, but uh, we got off of it because they didn't know if there was going to be incoming on that, and that plane never stopped. During the interview, I realized a lot of the questions I was asking came from my own fears and concerns I had mulled over when we were waiting to see if we were going to war. What's it like being shot at? My dad describes the sound of a bullet passing by. It's got a, a, a little whistle to it. A little whistle to it, and when it uh, goes past you, it uh, kind of leaves a little crack-type deal. I'll include two YouTube links in the description in which you can hear the sound of bullets cracking and also making a whistle or whizzing sound. I'd never been so blunt before in asking my dad questions about Vietnam, and it was what I asked next that really drove home the reality of my dad's experiences. Of the patrols, how many times did a firefight break out? That happened, oh, uh, I would say at the most 50%. Oh, crap. And there it is. Oh, crap. Just the trainings for firefights weren't traumatic, but they definitely could put some sobering thoughts into your head about what might happen if you did deploy. And now I just learned that this man who had taken off my training wheels had repeatedly experienced what we had only trained for and then came home and never really elaborated on it. you got to understand, sometimes there would only be two or three shots fired, you know, which was nothing. It would be an engagement if there was some automatic weapons fire. You hear the guns chatter and you knew that uh, uh, it was going to be more of an engagement. How long? Oh, I'd say a minute. You put a lot of rounds out in a minute. Does it seem like longer, though? Oh, heavens, yes. I guess you don't always know who your parents are. Could you ever hear your enemy? Could you hear him yelling? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. He would give commands at times, or especially if they had to retreat type situation, uh, they would, uh, you would hear that kind of activity going on. I served with the Army Corps of Engineers, which is not like the Marines or an Army infantry unit known for purposefully going out to get into firefights. But I did wonder sometimes what it would be like if we were being advanced on and I couldn't hit the people who were trying to hit us. And worse, what if I was the last one of us left when we were overrun? I asked my dad what it was like to have an enemy so close to you. Uh, <clears throat> you just hope that uh, you didn't have to go to a hand-to-hand -hand, uh, fighting-type situation with them, and I never did. Another thing I'm really glad I asked my dad was this. Were there ever times you were afraid? Was I afraid? Yeah, ever while you were over there? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, everybody was. I don't care who they are or when they were or what they were. Despite our unit not having the reputation of the Marines or some sort of hardened combat group, we were shamed if we ever showed fear or looked nervous or unsure about things. There were times when you didn't know. For example, you'd be at night in there and you didn't know if they had already set in. And as a result, you were moving into position and you may have encountered them when they were waiting for you to come. Or, oh yes, there were times when people were afraid uh, 
And that was just the nature of warfare. I'm really glad that my dad, who doesn't really talk about feelings very much or at all, was willing to be honest about that with me. Going through the pictures with my dad, I think one of the more dramatic ones is the picture of that fireball rising up like an orange and red neon mushroom. Rockets would come in and hit and explode. They came in one time at uh, Dong Ha and uh, hit into an ammunition dump that we had there and uh, caused it all to go on to fire. And you'll see uh, pictures I have of that, an explosion. Dad said he got the picture of the fireball by lifting the camera up with two hands past the cover he was taking at the time. The image is even blurred a little bit, which makes me wonder if that's because of how he was taking the picture or maybe because the blast was close enough to shake the camera and him. One of the rocket attacks produced not just a photo, but an additional memento as well. And I went over to the crater, and there was what they called the nose cone, or what they called the firecracker, and it was still intact. So I picked it up, and I brought that home. My dad had a box where he kept an old whistle and a souvenir from Yellowstone Park. Inside of that box was that hunk of shrapnel. As a kid, sometimes I'd go into my parents' room and look at it. It's about the size and shape of a chewing tobacco can, but way heavier, and it's twisted a little and missing its middle. You can still see some type of Asian characters on the side, and it's sharp, so much so that if you squeezed it in your hand wrong, it would probably cut your palm. I still imagine it flying through the air, sharp and white hot, at some horrible speed towards uniforms and flesh before hitting something too solid for it to pass through. There's a series of photos in the Vietnam album that depicts my dad's unit going to a village and searching the area around it for Viet Cong. Because of what happens next, or more because I worry about listeners' reactions to it, I've considered not sharing this part of my dad's interview. But I will. We had been working in an area for a period of time. We knew that the, the NVA, North Vietnamese uh, Army, was in there. So what we did is we loaded up on helicopters, we moved in in the night, and we got off the helicopters, we did a complete circle around the whole area. So the first thing we did is we rounded up the villagers and said, what is going on here? Who is there and what's going on? And they're very reluctant to talk to us, so we knew they were there. And this is a picture of the villagers. My dad shows me a picture of a group of villagers calmly sitting outside. He had mentioned to me before that before anyone could snap the picture, the villagers held up their hands and took their hats off before it could be taken for some reason. Uh, we had probes uh, that uh, uh, you could hear listening devices as to what's going on, and we uncovered where some of their caves were. All of a sudden, a lid flew off on one of these caves, and an AK-47 came up out of there, and he sprayed with that. And it put us all down on the ground, of course, type situation, because we didn't know if he was going to try leveling it and shoot at us, or he was just spraying. I thought, well, we can call in heavy support and just uh, uh, turn the ground completely, or we can give him one more chance to surrender. Uh, we brought the uh, interpreter up, said, look, you tell them, they better come crawling out of there, or we'll kill every one of them. One of them surrendered. And he came up, and he put his hands together, and we grabbed him, and he says, there's others in there. And so came back on and says, come out or you're going to be killed. The two men in the cave refused to surrender and continued to fire shots out of the hole. This is a picture of what we did. Dad holds up one of the four pictures of the two combatants that had been killed when they refused to surrender. 
you don't see any blood or gore, and I think they were killed from the concussion of a grenade or some other explosives the Marines used to clear the hole. This was the thing I wasn't sure if I should share because I don't want anyone to judge my dad or his platoon for what they did that day, especially anybody who has not been in the same position or at least sworn the oath that could have put them in that same position. No one is abusing the corpses or posing with them or anything like that. They're just sort of in the shot, and the picture was actually taken more of the group that happened to be around them. I'd seen those pictures in the album growing up, and never thought much of it. I figured that was what happened in wars. However, it was only after my own military service that I quit looking at the dead bodies and started to look at my dad's face. And I think the reason why I was studying his expression so hard was to see how maybe I would have reacted under the same circumstances, or maybe how I should have reacted if I had ever been put in the same spot. You only see my dad in one of the shots that someone took, and he isn't laughing or smiling or mugging for the camera. He just looks very, very tired and maybe sort of disgusted. It makes me wonder how many other people have had an experience like this where they can study their loved one's expression while that person was going through something intense and completely divorced from most people's everyday reality. For those of you who do feel inclined to judge my dad, here's what happened after those men died. We brought the villagers up to look at them and see you don't have to be afraid of them anymore. They're gone. And they really chattered. They talked to us extensively after they saw this. My dad wouldn't elaborate much on what exactly the men in the cave had been doing to the villagers, but he said that as the female villagers walked by the dead men, some of them spat on their bodies. So whatever it was, it was probably really bad. I don't know what happened to that village or to the people there after the Marines and the Americans left. I'm proud of my dad because in the midst of a horrible war where everything was a mess... He and his platoon tried to do what they could to help people who were suffering. Here's something else you should know about him and the Marines he was in charge of. This is a picture of the little uh, kids, I would say about uh, 8 to 12 years old, that was in the Hamlet type situation. We did everything we could to protect and help the, the civilian population, especially these little ones like this. Frequently, they would sometimes be abandoned or deserted, and uh, we would... Uh, take them to an orphanage. The tour for every one of the Marines was 13 months. You could do it in extension. I had one kid, he was in Montana, he was a sergeant, and he spent three years there in Vietnam. I asked him, nice kid, why are you doing this? He says, well, I'd sooner be here helping the people than I would be back in garrison in the States. So I'm gonna stay here, and a lot of others did too. I asked Dad what it was like when his 13-month tour was over, and he got on the plane to go home. Oh, when the plane lifted off the airstrip at Da Nang, there was a giant shout, because the plane was loaded with people going home, and a giant shout and, and uh, euphoria and joy. Remember how I said my dad isn't real emotive or sentimental? He did share two memories of how the war still affected him even after he got home and was stationed at Camp Pendleton. When I got back to Camp Pendleton, there was a, a location on the base where there was a series of telephones, booths, and uh, these uh, young people would be brought there and they could uh, place telephone calls home to their relatives, parents, or whatever the case may be. I knew that uh, where they were going, uh, was fraught with uh, frequently great danger. And so I uh, still remember the picture of those young young people 
18, 19-year-old individuals standing there to place a telephone call to home. Remember how this story started with my mom saying she was worried that the man coming up to her door was there to say something terrible had happened to my dad while he was in Vietnam? After he came home, my dad occasionally served duty on casualty and injury notification teams that were sent in person to tell loved ones that their family members had been hurt or killed in Vietnam. Myself and the chaplain talked it over. We knew the name and what we were to report, and we had discussed that type situation. And so we would park the car, and we had it so that we had to be close to each other because you never knew what the reaction was going to be. The people may come at you fighting. The people may come at you crying. And so we both were very much on alert that if uh, uh, we knocked on the door, we had to both stand back because we didn't know what was going to happen. And so we discussed that and were prepared for uh, whatever took place. This is one example of his experiences. There was a major, I can't remember his name, but he was a helicopter pilot, and they had crashed the helicopter, and uh, he was uh, severely wounded. Myself and the Navy chaplain went out and knocked on the door. Uh, The wife answered the door. She saw us, and she started crying. And I said, oh, no, ma'am, your husband is not dead. And she said, oh, how bad is it, how bad is it? And I says, well, I can't tell you 100%, but I can tell you the information I have uh, been informed with is that he is alive and that uh, he's under medical care at the present time. And she was so relieved, she almost fainted. And she was so thankful and so appreciative, and she stopped crying. I'd asked Dad about PTSD and if he thought he had it. Both of my parents said that he was kind of on alert for the first few months after getting home. However, the only glaring thing that they remember was actually back during my dad's tour when he was able to get leave about halfway through and meet up with my mom in Honolulu. Mary Jean and I were on uh, Honolulu, and we were at the zoo. And I was standing there at the rail, and it was a a cat enclosure, whether it was tigers or lions, I don't remember. But I was looking at them, and there was a, a group of kids that came in, and they had disabilities. And I saw him coming, I didn't pay attention to him, and one of them came up and grabbed me. And I jumped, and I grabbed that bar and almost went over it into that lion's cage type stuff for the simple reason that my nerves and my reflexes were 100% to be alert and get out of the way. And it scared the little boy. And, of course, I felt bad about it, but just the way it was, I had no control over that kind of activity. That's the only time I've ever heard of my dad showing PTSD-like symptoms, or honestly, living up to any of the stereotypes people project onto veterans. He wasn't macho or mean to people. In fact, I remember him telling me one time when I was in junior high that if I got into a fight, at least one I could avoid, I was letting someone else control me. However, I do remember two things from growing up in which my dad did act the way you would think a former Marine who had served in Vietnam would act. On June 28th, 1992 at 8.05 a.m., a 6.6 earthquake grabbed our house that we were living in in California and started shaking it. We were already in the living room watching the TV coverage of the Landers earthquake that had happened three hours before, and I distinctly remember we had this giant old wooden entertainment center with a big heavy TV in it, and it seemed to rise up into the air almost off of the carpet with one of the rolling waves from the earthquake. And my mom and I cowered in the doorway 
But dad just sat there on the couch and I remember the way the couch shook and the way his body kind of moved and rocked as he just kind of surfed on the couch. And I remember saying, dad, do something. And I think his response was to look at us and smile and say, what do you want me to do? (laughs) Mom confirms this story. Yeah, we'd been told if you felt an earthquake, you should stand under a door frame. You and I were standing there, one on one side and one on the other, and he was just sitting there on the couch like nothing was happening. What do you think you reacted that way? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I think that's kind of part of his personality, that he he doesn't usually react in a very active way to things. I had been through... uh, quite a few uh, tough situations, basically, and I'm sure that I thought it wasn't as as onerous or as bad as as, uh, uh, what it could have been. I also remember in the spring of 1997, I was working on a science Olympiad project when the drone of a helicopter passed our house, but instead of fading off into the distance, it came back and passed over our house again in the other direction, and it kept passing over and over the house and the neighborhood, And we saw it was shining its spotlight into our yard and into our neighbor's yards. And my dad was wearing this sweater, like what Mr. Rogers would wear. And he had hush puppy slippers on. And he was just trying to relax. But suddenly he disappeared into the back room. And then he came back wearing a pistol on his hip. The reason why the helicopter was flying around is they were looking for some bad guys that got into the neighborhood. And as a result, I wanted to make sure that they weren't going to harm any of our family or any of that kind of situation. And, of course, I was very familiar that uh, uh, weaponry was a necessary element of protection. And the helicopter uh, eventually left the area. Either the people had uh, uh, departed from the, from the neighborhood or whatever became of them. I never did see anyone. Uh, even though I was prepared if they took and come at me or if they tried breaking into our house. The image of my dad calmly reading through his Land's End catalog behind drugstore reading glasses with a pistol on his hip is something I'll never forget. The image of an aged warrior doing what he had to do to keep his family safe. It's something I wish I had my own picture of to show to my own kids and keep in our family album. I asked my dad what he learned from his time in Vietnam. Life uh, can be easily lost, and so you have to make the best of each day that comes through. And as a result, uh, you have to take the good with the bad throughout the rest of your life. I wanted to thank my dad for sitting down with me and giving me this interview. If you enjoy listening to the show and would like to hear more episodes, it's all free. Please just go online and do a search for That Doesn't Happen Every Day, two words, podcast. And from there, you can get access to every show I've ever made. And I would love it if you would start following the show. One thing I wanted to bring up is it's estimated there are only about 200,000 World War II veterans living in the United States still. When it comes to the more recent war of Vietnam, it's estimated that there are less than 850,000 Vietnam veterans still alive. Every time one of these veterans passes away, their stories are lost. If there's a veteran you know who you feel close enough to ask, It might be worth asking if you could record their oral history. If they're willing to let you just record their stories on your cell phone, that record you're making can be invaluable to future generations. Even if you're worried the quality of your recording isn't great, an unprofessional recording is still much better than none at all after our veterans have passed away. I hope you'll tune in again in the next few weeks for the next episode of That Doesn't Happen Every Day. Thanks.